This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So, um, I'm Ron Purser, and I am an iaholic. Are there any other iaholics in the room? <laughs> well, some are not. You're, you're awakened. You can leave. <laughs> Just kidding. So I think that is really a good starting place for this talk. Um, because, you know, like Alcoholics Anonymous, um, we're all suffering from this eye addiction. Addiction to the eye. And <clears throat> so why, why do I have this addiction to me? So there's, there's more, it's more complicated than just the, the eye. So I want to kind of unpack that. Well, <clears throat> perhaps because we feel something is missing in our lives, so we're, we're looking for something. Uh, we're craving something. Um... But I think this is, you can think of the I uh, as a, like a fundamental addiction, a fundamental uh, underlying addiction. But how did it, how did it occur? Uh, you, you'll, you'll notice that uh, I'm going to just be posing a lot of questions tonight. And that's part of what uh, I think may be uh, a way to look at these gateways in a different way. So if I keep posing a lot of questions, that's, that's, that's the plan. <laughs> um, so how, how does this addiction manifest? How does it occur? How does it feed itself? Is there a path to recovery? Are these merely philosophical questions? Or can these questions impact our everyday lives? for an everyday uh, dharma, which is the series this series is about. So uh, I'll try not to be too abstract, but these are very, very deeply rooted uh, questions that uh, we'll have to be looking at. Another way to think about it is, could I just be a habit of mind? Maybe I is just a habit of mind. Um, but it may be a very stubborn habit. That's the problem. Very, very stubborn habit. Because it never satisfies. It seems as though I have to keep clinging to more of myself. And so it's never satiated. It's never at ease. So the craving eventually becomes toxic over time. So again, what if we could see the I as just merely a label what if we even saw the name mind in the same way? I'll come back to this later. So we, say, we might say my mind is agitated, so I need to meditate. That's often one of our motivations uh, that brings us to meditation. But if we don't see clearly all or call into question the operations of the mind, 
we don't, if we don't call into question the fundamental addiction, that we may just import that same problem into meditation. And I'll be talking more about that later. So wait, maybe I'll talk about it now. So we carry, we carry those same conversations into the meditation. Now I am going to meditate. Now I am going to practice mindfulness. So we'll come back to that later. Watch the time here. How many people have heard of the, the word kleshas? I'm sure some of you. Often translated, well, Bob Thurman likes translating them now as uh, addictions, emotional addictions. He used to translate them as mental afflictions, mental emotional addictions. So these are very deeply rooted. And we may meditate and we, we may try to be mindful, we may try to be kind, we may try to be compassionate. But do we really know how our minds work, the operations of the mind, in terms of these gateways to samsara, I, me, my, and mind? So how, here's, the, here's, the, here's a dilemma in a way. How can, we, how can we know how our minds work by using our mind to figure out how they work? That's uh, it, a bit of a quandary. And... So here we are, we have this I addiction. It's a fundamental structure. And it, ha- it seems to be some sort of pre-established pattern. It's like, we don't have to, we don't have to think, a lot, uh, think a lot about being an I. It kind of just comes pretty quickly <laughs> from uh, an early age. Um, but sometimes it acts as a tyrant, dictating our thoughts, our behaviors, what we like, what we don't like, our regrets. So let's consider uh, some everyday examples, perhaps, that might shed some light on the habits of mind. Uh, One is, uh, you could refer to it as patterns of resistance. Uh, I think we could all probably think of examples of that. Patterns of resistance, we don't want to know or we resist change. Uh, I know for myself, uh, even though I've been an academic in writing, uh, I have terrible procrastination. It's terrible resistance starting a new project or paper. We all have different forms of resistance um, that manifest in many different ways. Second is misunderstanding. And the way I would characterize that is a defect, we have like a uh, misunderstanding maybe connected to a defense mechanisms that, that uh, we're not really wanting to see or acknowledge what, what's really going on within ourselves. So uh, we misunderstand. We, we have a problem of internal communications within our own mind because we, at some level we may know we're heading in a negative direction, right? At some level we kind of know it perhaps, but the communication doesn't occur. The knowledge doesn't get through to say, hey, hold on. So there's almost like a problem with internal communications. Um, so those are some of the habits of mind, I think, that are always operating. Not always operating, but create a lot of obstacles. Um, so go through this. Uh, let's say... We're, we're dealing with a situation where 
you know, at some level, I, you know, we kind of feel that what we're, what we're doing is going to cause some negativity or maybe it's not good for ourselves. Or, uh, and then, you know, or, you know, oftentimes when things go wrong, we either, you know, like blame other people or, or blame ourselves often. They're hard on ourselves when, when that happens. So uh, this, I think, is... Uh, you know, we say, oh, okay, I, I shouldn't have done that, you know, I have regret, uh, I slipped, uh, well, you know, back to the same old pattern, you know, I've been trying to resolve the uh, change, and, but we sort of keep falling back. Um, but here's the point, I think, that accepting that blame, you know, accepting that blame continues to cover up what's going on, I think. It's an easy... Uh, it's an easy concept to, to latch onto. It's a uh, case closed. Okay. I screwed up, you know, again. All right. Move on to the next thing. <laughs> so, uh, how do we deal with these underla- underlying patterns? Um, so, our minds filter almost all of our experience through these fundamental structures, framework the I-me-mine framework, almost all of our experience. So we think, just think of our language, you know, we say, well, my mind, <clears throat> my behavior, my pain, my meditation. Uh, in a way, that's not a, necessarily a bad thing because that's just the nature of, of language and how we're conditioned to uh, th- speak and think. Uh, so I think one of the... <clears throat> One of the challenges is, is it crazy to even call this question into, this framework into, into question? The I, me, mind framework. It just seems like, why, why would you do that? That's just the way things are. I mean, that's just what we are as human beings. So that's why the inquiry doesn't go much further. Because we've already accepted that framework as a given. And we may not even know how to call it into question. Because we're operating with that mind that would call it into question. So it's not, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's not that apparent how you would do that. And I'm asking that question. <laughs> so I, uh, I've been following the work of a Tibetan Lama for about 40 years. His name is Tarthang Tuku Rinpoche. He's, he started out in Berkeley. Uh, he's now up in northern uh, Sonoma County. And I'm just sharing reflections from a recent book that I, I just got probably three or four months ago. And that's where a lot of these ideas are coming from in terms of, because I've been working with these questions a, a little bit. And um, so I want to quote from that, uh, the book's called Dimensions of Mind. Um, it came out last summer. So here's, here's an interesting quote. It says, mind sets up the I-me-mind framework. It establishes a realm of reality within the framework and then clings to what has been established. So there it is. It's just so insidious. It's so deeply uh, entrenched. And so one way of perhaps, you know, uh, you, you know, meditation doesn't always have to be following the breath. There's other forms of meditation. Meditation is a broad word. 
Contemplation is another word. Uh, but another way of perhaps, you know, just playing with your mind in a way and saying everything that happens to you, say, that's not mine. That's not mine. You, it could be an exercise. Uh, why not? Because we believe in the other frameworks very well. Why, why, I mean, what, where's the rule that we, we can only believe in those frameworks? Who made up the rule? But there's a rule. I mean, we all bought, it's a consensus rule of some sort. Uh, and so I, me, and mind seems absolutely central to our experience. Unquestionably central. And we never, so therefore we never bother to question it. So that raises another rhetorical question is, am I the one who, prog- who progresses on the Buddhist path? It seems like I is always the one who knows and acts. The me attaches to the I, in a way. And it serves as a witness to the I. Then mind kind of just sustains it all, because mind is sort of like ownership. You know, it's kind of sustaining it. So it's a, you know, it's a, that's one way of, of looking how, how they communicate with each other, how they operate together. So then what mind is, it's reduced to just knowing and recognizing what I, me, and mine establish. So mind keeps the framework intact. It's a regime. It's like a regime. Uh, and so I take a strong position. The me has a territory to defend, and I need to protect what is mine and what belongs to me. Boy, it's such a Amazing, seamless framework. I mean, couldn't design a better framework like that. That was almost foolproof. But basic question is, can we operate or develop a way of knowing, develop a way of being that did not rely on this framework? Is it possible? And how can we challenge this basic fourfold framework, the gateways to samsara? Because they are the gateways to samsara. Can we inquire and observe directly how this framework operates in our everyday lives and in our meditation? Get to that later. So, what if we turned our attention over, and what if we turned our intelligence over? even our mindfulness, to observing and understanding how this framework operates, how it controls us, how it binds us, how it entangles us, and how it imprisons us. So if we're meditating um, simply for inner calm or simply for reducing stress, we may never activate this way of inquiring into the operations of mind. It's a good starting place, but we may never get beyond that. So certainly meditation, mindfulness meditation, it can turn down the volume of of what's going on. It could put those patterns on hold temporarily, provide some temporary relief. But if we can't see clearly the framework, it will continue to function. So we have to ask these basic questions. (laughs) 
So it's not something only reserved for medit- formal meditation, is my, would be my uh, point. These questions don't have to be happening only in a formal meditation period. Because this, this is what I say is everyday dharma, working with these four gateways. Comply it in all situations. Difficult, but... So, uh, if, we don't fall, if we don't fall into the trap, uh, especially in meditation, of perpetuating this framework, uh, <clears throat> it's very easy to just meditate and this framework is operating just fine. But it may not seem like, you may not notice it. So, for example, I am watching my breath. It's right there. Uh, or I had some really good or special meditative experience. I'm now the owner of that experience. I claimed it. It's mine. I want to report it to everyone. (laughs) So these fundamental structures are dualistic. It's a regime. It's a regime of mind that tells us that there's no other way and this is just the way things are very convincing. Uh, we're hypnotized by it. We're in a trance. It's a reality trance. Samsaric trance. Trance of samsara. So we go about our business as usual. We kind of know something is a bit off, but we accept it. We're too busy managing our own problems. Got enough to worry about. I got a meditation app that helps me cope a little bit better. Um, the analogy that Tarthank Tuko uses in this book is, is one of a search engine. Everybody knows what a search engine is now. And it says, it's like, if we use a search engine, if we use Google, we're only interested in the results. We don't care about how the code operates underneath it. Uh, we, we don't need to know that. Cause, why? Because we trust the results of the outcome of that search. Trustworthy, usually, well, not totally, of course, the way they're manipulating sometimes the feeds and everything. But in any event, you know, we do use the search engine, we trust the results. But for the operations of mine, um, are the results trustworthy? Uh, and that's, that's a question. So if we turn back to maybe some of the questions about meditation and the implications for the, uh, of, of these framework, this framework to meditation. And it, this is a bit, you know, this is difficult to talk about. The, 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 this, these are subtle, subtle, uh, uh, subtle phenomena. So it's hard to, we have to use language, otherwise we wouldn't be here. <laughs> we have to use language. <laughs> So, you know, I, I think it's sort of a way of putting it. Uh, the, uh, the starting position syndrome may be a way of putting it. And like, what does that mean, starting position syndrome? Starting position syndrome might be is that we have this initial stance or, or, uh, or, or frame that we start out with as we start the meditation. You may not consciously say, 
okay, I am meditating, or I am now being mindful of whatever it may be, or I'm being aware of. But you know, almost like from out, from, just right out of the gate, we're already uh, we're already kind of caught. Now it may feel good. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to negate any 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 relief that comes from from this from mindfulness and meditation. I mean, it's better than yelling at people, right? I mean, it's better. <laughs> at least you're calming yourself. But we're trying to get at these deeper, entrenched root causes of this framework. So I've been thinking about writing an article about this, and I'm calling this, uh, it's an I-spy form of mindfulness. I-spy. Now, <laughs> it's pun, but... Um, <laughs> So, uh, Tarthing Tuku puts it like this, and this is, this is where I got the idea, but I, 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 I'm elaborating on it now in terms of how it could be amplified. He says, it's like deciding to spy on our own mind, like putting the FBI and CIA on the case while we're meditating. So we put, in a way, we're putting our mind on a very tight leash, and sometimes we're afraid we might <coughs> fail not might, we, might, we might not do it right when we're meditating. So there's a lot of uh, communication going on between the I and the me and the mind and mind. But it, 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 it creates a tension in, in, even in meditation. So the I has a really big job to do even in meditation with that, when that framework is operating has a really big job to do. It has, to, has a lot to do, even though in meditation you're not supposed to be doing anything. It's a lot going on, though. <laughs> so, all kinds of concerns. I've got to make sure I do it right. You know, I don't, I've got to remember the instructions. Uh, uh, I've got to do it for a certain amount of time. Uh, I think this is what meditation should be like. Wait, this is not what meditation should be like. I didn't sign up for this. Wait a minute. So it's that stance, it's the posture, that starting position syndrome, that reinforces the very same framework we're trying to penetrate. (laughs) So think of it. The subject is aware of the object. That's another basic kind of framework. Well, but... There are times in meditation that perhaps you've transcended this dichotomy, this dualism. You, you've kind of uh, loosened up that tension in a meditation session. So you feel pretty good about yourself for doing that. Uh, <laughs> so what happens, though, after you get off the cushion? You had this beautiful meditation. It was blissful. It was peaceful. There was silence. And then you get off the cushion. Very likely, or the habits of mind will just pop right up again and rule their ugly heads sooner or later. So even in meditation, we can simply be operating in a very familiar zone, fooling ourselves even, and reinforcing these same fundamental structures. So is mindfulness meditation practice can it be a means 
to explore and investigate the fundamental structures? Or is it only to help an imagined separate self attain its desires and avoid pain and loss? And I think that is a fundamental question for all practitioners, including myself. It's much easier to do the former. I mean, the, the latter. It's much easier to do the latter. Uh, because, uh, you know, because these structures are, are uh, it's like fish in water. We just, you know, it's just there. Can't see it. So even if mindfulness meditation allows one to see feelings as just feelings, thoughts as just thoughts, even if the observer can gain some distance, I'm not my thoughts, you know, the decentering kind of thing. But this only creates more separation and distance in a way. There's the subject now who has distanced himself or herself from the objects of mind. So if I, then, in this stance of being decentered, if I am separate from my emotions and thoughts and sensations, it still leaves the I untouched. So who is this I that it's being aware of? The mental states of detachment, quiet, equanimity can become another object of clinging. And we can construct a whole new spiritual identity around it. We can become attached even to the practice of of mindfulness itself. So, nobody said this this Buddhist spiritual path is easy. (laughs) But maybe it could be. Um, There's no rule. But the the fundamental rule of, of, of these four gateways... It's become a rule. I mean, how did it get established? Maybe that's a metaphysical question we don't need to worry about. fact is, it's happening. So, the I then is still in charge. Its job remains secure. It has great job security, even in meditation. As it must, now it becomes the agent who makes special mental states arise through its very diligent efforts. We could feel a little morally superior. Look at all those unmindful people. But now I'm the agent. Now I'm the owner of my mindfulness. However, you know, over time it becomes a burden because I have to constantly spy on myself. It's constantly this constant self-surveillance. Uh, constantly to be mindful at all times. And there's a, a New York Times reporter who, David Gellis, he has this weekly paragraph, you know, how to have a mindful Valentine's Day, how to take a mindful bath, how to, I don't know, it's, mindful, it's just every week, it's like, how to have a mindful kiss was one of them. I mean, come on. So, uh, are we burdened with the impossible task of always... Tr- yeah, we, we can be burdened with the impossible task of always trying to be in the present moment as well. That's another one. I won't get into that too. Not enough time. 
So becoming more mindful, becoming more attentive, doesn't necessarily lead to freedom from I, me, mine, and mind. Doesn't necessarily. So I'm going to just uh, maybe close up by reading, reading a little bit from this other new book that Tarthang Tuku just put out, which I haven't even finished. So hot off the press. <laughs> but I thought it would be appropriate to 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 the talk. Um, so yeah, let's see. Lacking real solutions, real wisdom, we more or less conclude that freedom is not possible, not at the present time, not at this moment. And I says, but that's not good enough. We have a serious problem here. How are we going to fix this? And mine says, how indeed? We are fortunate to inhabit the global culture of the 21st century. We have formidable technical knowledge and, vast, and access to vast archives of recorded interpreted experience. Yet we possess close to no examples, no models, and no teachers who could help us take a different path. The pride of all other skillful means bereft of any training in the methods of transformation. Our only vehicle is how. How is how we gather knowledge. How determines what courses of action we may take. How assumes the present parameters are real and must be obeyed. How else could we do it? Held hostage by our own how, we may begin to despair. The vision of freedom of a different kind of knowledge may seem a little like Western concepts of heaven, beautiful, desirable, and a long way off. Even if we use the Sanskrit terms like prajna, or reach for our own words in our own language that mean wisdom or higher knowledge or emptiness or enlightenment, we find that our meanings still occupy a precinct that was set up in advance. All of these concepts, no matter how inspiring and uplifting, are conditioned by what we presently know. For us, getting answers means having conceptual thoughts, nothing more or less. We are partially aware of the deep decision-making involved when mind endorses the meaning of those labels and only partially aware of the cost. With our how, we howl for our freedom. Lonely wolves howling at a distant moon. And I comes in and says, I couldn't do it. I read about the regime of mine. I learned about the problems. I tried to answer the questions. I did, but I couldn't get anywhere different. I guess I'm just stuck here. And me says, this always happens to me. <laughs> and I says, I'm tired of thinking about it. Me says, hey, maybe there's a snack for me in the kitchen. I says, right, what's the point? <laughs> the point is, the point is that all of us, every lonely traveler who has ever lived and struggled, whose experience unfolds in time, all of us need help. Our future is at stake here. We deserve better than this. The point is, we have an opportunity to learn something truly new. Can we travel a different road? This is not an idle question. Our inquiry is not just theoretical or philosophical. If there is even a chance that we could change the character of our being in time, what doors might open to us? I think that was just, just a phenomenal 
pages there. They're so provocative. And I'll end with one more passage here. I was looking at this earlier. We may seem to be speaking now of a state far beyond our present way of being, but there is no real gap. We can turn each thought, each awareness, each activity of mind toward knowledge. In fact, we have a kind of mission to do so, for this is the way to go beyond the conceptual and enter the realm of bliss. We proceed step by step, but we do so skillfully. The stages through which we pass become a little translucent. We are not caught up in comparisons of higher and lower, right and wrong. Still, we may say, I need to meditate, I need to practice, I need to go on retreat. We may have room for, for improvement in the sake and for the sake of improvement, we may use the concepts that language provides. Although knowing knows beyond mind, beyond language, and beyond concepts, conventional understanding offers consciousness the vehicle to reach this way of being. Here's what I really wanted to read. <laughs> Relative understanding can be the ship that takes us on our journey. Without it, we may have no way to go beyond samsaric structures, no way to pass through the gates of the regime of mind. As long as we are on the path involved in relative reality, we will know only one truth. Provided we do not cling to that truth, this is not a problem. We are simply the viewer seeing as we see. When the viewer is gone, appearance becomes the enlightened realm. The character of what manifests does not persist, just as the pervasive open mind of realization does not belong to its recipients. With no audience to see or experience, the transformation is spontaneous. There is no more path, and no one who practices. The journey itself is the goal of the journey, and we already hold the fruit in our hands. Until that realization dawns, however, we need the relative path. We need to follow the way of conventional understanding. The path of relative truth is an accommodation to our ordinary understanding, presented to us through the compassion of the bodhisattvas. Christianity says that God created the realm of form. I think this implies an understanding that the world is intrinsically holy. In a similar sense, we could say that samsara manifests solely for the purpose of liberation. The identity of samsara and nirvana operates in both directions. Perfect realization is not separate from eyeness, from thoughts, and from the sense faculties. The path is a manifestation of enlightenment, and so is the vehicle. The method we use to obtain the result is itself the result. The journey we are, we are on is in one sense preparation, prepar, preparation for realization, a process I need to go through to reach a different level of being. Yet, when we reach that different level, the place I began and the place I have reached are united. I may I'll stop there. And he says... In this other book of his, he says, we have to make the human mind great again. <laughs> so I'll stop there. He's <laughs> got a good sense of humor. Thank you. It's so much fun talking. Thanks.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.